Amen. All righty. Turn to Daniel 11. Daniel chapter 11. So there's a, here on the campus, there's a paintball field. And one of the funniest things I ever saw was these two kids on the same team get in a fight because one of them shot the other one in the back of the head on accident. And, uh, and I, don't, I don't know if you've ever felt like you were in a crossfire. Um, when I was a kid, there was a Milton Bradley game called Crossfire. Anybody remember that game? Um, I loved that game. And, uh, and tonight, we're going to look at Israel in a crossfire. Now, I'm going to tell you, I've got, a, I've got a headache from studying this, man. Like, Spencer texted me about a week ago and said, oh, my gosh, chapter 11, what in the world? And I was like, I don't know. I got nothing. So, um, it's, and, but you guys know I love history. And what, so as we go into this, we're stepping back to, okay, we're stepping back to the time of Daniel, and we're going to look forward several hundred years as he unfolds a prophecy that we now get to look back at as history. And in these first 35 verses, listen to this, Charles Swindoll identifies over 100 prophecies that were fulfilled from the time this was written until the time Jesus came. That we have, and, and you're going to have, there will be secular or so-called liberal Christian theologians and historians that will say there's no way that Daniel could have been written at the time that we, we say it was written, which was in the 6th century B.C. Because much of the prophetic fulfillment in this vision happens the century two centuries before Christ, okay? So we're going to look at things that Daniel wrote in the 500s B.C., and we're going to see those things unfold in fulfillment up until right before the time of Christ. And what it should do is it should really give us a fresh and assured confidence in the Word of God. And, and it is a really cheap undermining of that when somebody will say, well, I know what happened. This was written after the fact. But I want you to think back two weeks ago in chapter uh, 8, 9. No, let's think three weeks back in chapter 8. Think three weeks back, chapter 8. And in that chapter, um, we saw uh, the, a prophecy about Alexander the Great and how Josephus, the first and second century historian, who was a Jew but not a Christian, so he had nothing to gain by talking about messianic prophecy being fulfilled that would advance the Christian cause. Josephus told and recorded of Alexander the Great having a vision. And in that vision, he saw a man in purple come out of the holy place in Jerusalem. And through that vision, he felt compelled to bless the people of Israel. So when Alexander the Great goes on his conquest of the world, he spares Israel. In fact, he worships in Israel to their God. Now, there's no indication he becomes a true follower of Yahweh, but he forms sort of this spiritual alliance with the, high, with the, priests, the priestly leadership of Israel. And that happened 200 years after what we're going to study tonight. So what I'm saying is 
this should so concrete our faith as Christians in, in terms of the authenticity, the authority, and the accuracy of the Word of God. And I want you to pay attention tonight to the specificity with which some of these prophecies got fulfilled. Because we're going to read the prophecy when it's being made, and then I'm going to tell you what happened in history that fulfilled that prophecy. It's, there's going to be moments where it's like the real housewives of Babylon. I mean, like, it gets, it gets kooky and crazy. Some of you gals are going to love it. Some of you guys are going to lose your minds. But at the end, there's like violence, war, knives, swords, people fighting and so there's something for everybody tonight all right so this think think that you've traded off the Super Bowl for an episode of uh, uh, the, the Bachelor show okay so so like like that's that's what we got all right so we got we got a lot going on so let's dive in in uh, Daniel 11 verse 1 as for me in the first year of Darius the Mede I stood up to confirm and strengthen him now he says as for me because remember this is the this is a continuation of last week where you've got this angel who's speaking and giving this prophecy to Daniel. So he says, as for me, I stood up to strengthen. Now, here's a principle. This is not a main point of the message. Main point of the message is that God's people, his church, will survive the crossfire of this world, but we will, we will have to endure to do that. But this is interesting. You've got a, you've got a secular pagan king being held up and strengthened by the angel of the Lord, which tells us sometimes, remember we talked last week about pulling back the curtain and seeing what's going on behind the curtain. Sometimes something's going on behind the curtain that we don't see and might not even understand. So you've got God working behind the, like the, the goings on of a pagan king. And it could even challenge the way we think in terms of praying for our leaders because um, it can be hard to pray for our leaders. But we need to pray for our leaders because God's at work behind the curtain. Verse 2. Now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong, strong through the, his riches, he shall stir up against. Uh, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion, and do as he will. So, verse two, he's given us a succession of Persian kings. Now Daniel is writing this under the leadership of a Persian king, the first Persian king. And then he says to Daniel, there's going to be a succession of these Persian kings that are going to go over the next, you know, few decades. And then there's going to be, at the end of that succession of Persian kings, there's going to be a king who really expands the Persian influence, and he's going to be very wealthy. And we, a lot of, a lot of theologians think that that is the, the man that Queen Esther married. So we progress a few decades, several kings come and go in this succession, this Persian king comes into power who, uh, who, who sort of expands the influence, but he's known for suffering a great defeat to uh, a, a, like a great defeat at the hands of the Greek army. So this begins the downfall of Persia. So then in verse 3, we see the rise of Alexander the Great, who we also saw in chapters 2 and 8. Okay, so Alexander the Great is going to come to power. So you've got Persian Empire. Now, under the Persian Empire, keep in mind, Babylon had come into power, and they took the Jews as exiles, and this is what Daniel experienced, castration, mutilation, and slavery, people murdered, people um, like re-educated at the Babylonian University, 
people, people put into forced labor. But then under the Persian rule, there's the, they rule with like a, what one theologian calls a soft touch. So they allow the Israelites to go back to their homeland. They go to their homeland. They rebuild Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. Okay, so the Jews get to go back. And what that means is they get to start worshiping their God under Persian rule. Alexander comes into power, and he overthrows the Persians, and this is what we're reading about in verse 3. And we know that Alexander the Great came into power when he was like in his early 20s, and it was, I mean, literally a blistering pace with which he conquered the world. And he literally conquered the world and expanded the territory of his empire. Now, in that process, he extended further grace to the country of to the nation of Israel. So you've got this empire all the way around Israel, and Israel has the grace of Alexander extended to them, which means they get to continue to worship in their temple their God. They are a monotheistic culture, so they don't have to worship the Greek gods. They don't have to worship pagan gods. They get to keep worshiping their God. So he's such an effective conqueror that it said that after this, I thought this was interesting, that after he had conquered Persia, he sat down with his face in his hands and wept because there was nothing else to conquer, which tells us Alexander Great had reached to literally the ends of the earth with his influence and established a kingdom. Verse 4, as soon as he is risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside the, besides these. So what, what he's talking about there is that Alexander would die. Most people think he was poisoned. Some people think he died from some sort of a sepsis or something like that. But he dies when he's in his early 30s, and he has no heir to, 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 for, for his like kingship to be passed down to. So his king, the Greek empire, is split into four smaller empires and goes to his four most powerful generals, okay? And so that's verse four, fulfilled. Now, as you're listening to this, don't get bored listening to history. This was prophecy, not history. So the angel is telling Daniel, he doesn't name him, but he says there's gonna be a ruler and this is what's gonna happen. And then y'all, this happened, okay? 200 years later, this happened, literally with specificity. Verse five, then the king of the south, now this is where it gets real housewives of Babylon right here. Okay, so let's look verse five through nine. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years, they shall make an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm. And he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, uh, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch, uh, and from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. All right, so what happens is, what happened was the king of the north, so there's four kingdoms, and we're going to focus in on the one that's above Egypt, I mean Israel, and the one that's below it. So think Syria, Babylon, and Egypt. Those are the two kingdoms. And they're going to start fighting with each other. They're all part of this big Greek empire, but these two, this never works when you start dividing stuff up. Think, some of you have lived through a horrific estate settlement in your family where brothers and sisters are ready to kill each other, right, over 
a high school letterman jacket or some garbage like that, all right? Nothing no, but his ring. No, like, nobody cares. Like, just let them have it all, okay? All right, let them have it all. So north, south, they're fighting. Israel's in the middle, so we're going to get Israel caught up in this crossfire. Now, what happens is that now the king of the north, you don't have to remember these names. I'm going to give you some names, but not a lot of names. There's a bunch of names. You can go study the names if you want to, but it, you'll just get confused. But I'm going to tell you some of the names because they're good names, all right? The king of the north is Syria. Uh, in Syria is Antiochus II, Antiochus II, okay? And he has a wife named Lotus, Laudus, L-A-U-D-I-C-E, Laudus, and they have a son who will be the heir to the throne of the northern kingdom. So you got Antiochus II up north, and then in the south you got a king called Ptolemy II, and he rules in Egypt, and he got a daughter named Bernice, because they're from the south, okay? That's in the south, all right. Everybody good. We good. North, south. You got Laudus up north and Bernice in the south, okay? So the king, this King Ptolemy II, decides to have his daughter Bernice marry Antiochus in the north. This was common to form an alliance. So they're going to take their two kingdoms under the Greek, the spread of, of, of the Greek empire, and they're going to join them together, okay? But in order to do this, this king in the north, Antiochus, he has to divorce his wife and, and then he has to disown or disavow their son that they have together because that son is to be the next king. So he does that, and he marries Bernice, and they have a kid, okay? But don't, don't mess with Laudus. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. I don't know who said it, but it's real, okay? Laudus kills Antiochus and Bernice and their boy, okay? Kills them. All right, so Laudus then is like, now there we go. My boy's going to be king. So at the same time this happens, Bernice's daddy dies. So this alliance, all this like alliance that's being formed, all the key players are dead in just a matter of like a short period of time, okay? So now new rulers emerge. Bernice's brother takes over down here, and he's like, y'all killed my sister and my nephew we're coming for you. And they go right back to war, okay? Now, if you read what we just read, verses 5 through 9, you can play this out. What I had to do is take a, I had to take a journal and write it out. Okay, here's Antiochus. Here's Ptolemy, both number two. Antiochus two, Ptolemy two. And here's Bernice. And, here, and I had to write it out. And you can make this make sense. And it's crazy to think that Daniel's writing this over 200 years before it happens. And how specific it is, it should invigorate your faith as a Christian, okay? So, they start fighting, um, and then this guy, Ptolemy Third, he goes and attacks Egypt because he's mad about his sister and that whole deal. And when he does, he carries all of their sacred idols back to his homeland. Now, this was like, it's like, uh, it's like um, think of... Uh, a, a really, a really intense rivalry between two high schools, and these kids over here go and they and they steal this ma mascot statue off the front lawn of this one, you know, like and take it over and they they, they like this was like we're gonna take all of your idols, your gods, like we're gonna take control of the spiritual realm and bring it back to our homeland. So that's what happens. Verse ten, 
His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall, come, which, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. This is why I argued with Jim Forchetti for five years about we don't want to preach Daniel. I don't know what we're going to do with chapter 11. Okay, so let, let's walk through this. So the next king in Syria is, is, is another Antiochus. We'll just drop the numbers and the nicknames. We'll just, okay, it's another successive Antiochus. And he goes up to Egypt. Now, so they're just bannering back and forth, okay? So he goes up to Egypt to, uh, to, to get his stuff back, uh, but he gets whipped and he gets sent home, which I don't know why at this point the Syrians didn't just crush him. And do away with him, but they let him go home. He goes home, builds his army stronger, gets enough strength, goes. Hot, hot, hot. I thought it was a bee. Bless her heart. Oh, man. Hang in there, Noxie. I hope it's not bad. Let's pray for Noxie. You got to pray you'd help right now uh, set the pain aside, but really, really, really ask you that uh, that coffee wasn't hot enough to legitimately cause burns on her skin. Uh, pray that you would you'd help her to um, calm down and, and be eased in her mind and her heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, okay, so we get to verse uh, 17. When we get to verse 17, what's happened is this dude has, has gotten strong enough to go back up and exact revenge, okay? Now, this is where it really starts to take a turn historically and where Israel's really going to start to come into play. So verse 17, he shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. He shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage, okay? So this Antiochus decides to make another attempt at peace. They keep fighting back and forth. He's like, let's do the peace thing again. I remember one time we tried to do a, a bridal thing, and that didn't, you know, it didn't work out, but maybe we can make it work this time. So he's going to give one of his daughters to be the bride to the king of Egypt. He does so, and that daughter's name is Cleopatra. You may have heard from her in about your sophomore year in British literature or whatever that was you had to study. Okay, so Cleopatra goes to, to marry this guy, but it backfires, and she actually becomes loyal to her husband rather than to her father which is actually the way it's supposed to be um, if you're going to marry somebody, okay? So um, um, verse 18, get to verse 18. Afterward he, uh, afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall, be put, uh, shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back on him. Then he shall turn his back toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Okay, this is fascinating. So he goes back. Rome is on the rise, okay? So the Roman Empire is starting to rise, 
All right, and as the Greek Empire continues to fragment, the Roman Empire continues to gain, str- gain strength. Antiochus the Great begins to conquer new lands along the coastland and actually begins to conquer various island nations. The Romans step in and say, no, 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 no more conquest. You take what you got, you rule there, don't cross the, like they draw a line in the sand, don't cross the line, okay? Don't come up here. He refuses and makes the mistake of picking a fight with Rome. It's what we read in verses 18 and 19. So he picks a fight with Rome. Rome whips him multiple times. Then they take his son as a prisoner of war. This is the next Antiochus, who will become a name that you're familiar with, and and, and we'll get to that in a minute. So they take his son as a prisoner of war, and they demand a huge ransom. The problem is he's so broke from all of his war campaigns and from trying to trying to fight Rome and that that's why he was trying to expand that territory. They've cut off that tribute, those tribute states and cities. And so um, he has to go try to raise the money to buy his son back. And so what he does is he goes and he robs the temple of Jupiter. Apparently, people that worship Jupiter, you don't mess with, their, don't mess with them, okay? Because what they do is, and, and keep in mind, ancient temples were wealthy places. But the people, so he goes and he's like, I'll take all this. I can go in and I can rob the temple. But the people there flip out. They kill him and no one knows what happens to his body. It's like Irish mafia, burying somebody in the west end of the New York Giants Stadium in the concrete, like it's one of those deals, okay? Uh, or, or they take one of those deep dive swims with concrete boots, okay? So we don't know what, he's just gone. Dude's just gone, okay? Disappears, verse 20. Then there shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few, within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. So Antiochus IV is a prisoner in Rome, so the other, there's another son that then takes over. So you've got the son that's in, in, in Rome in jail, so this other son's like, well, dad's gone, I'll take over. How are we going to get this money? Because we're still in debt to Rome. I know what I'll do. We'll do a tax collection. So he appoints a tax collector, a very influential man. The tax collector has him poisoned, which, look at verse 20. Within a few days, this man is poisoned. He will be broken neither in anger nor in battle. His dad died at the hands of an angry mob. He has predecessors who have died in battle. Neither of those will happen. That is fulfilled as this tax collector has him poisoned. The tax collector then, verse 21, this is interesting. In his place shall arise a contemptible person. Talking about the tax collector. All right, this is, this is you can't make this kind of stuff up. To whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. So the tax collector decides he's going to be king. This is verse 21. This is part of his plan. So um, one son is a prisoner in Rome. The other is now dead. The problem is the Romans have now released Antiochus from their custody because the dad's dead. They're like, we don't care. So they release him. He comes home and becomes king, but not by killing this tax collector, because apparently this dude's pretty powerful and influential. He figures out a way to bribe enough people to take back over. It's actually, that part's pretty anticlimactic. He rolls back into town, you're like, they're going to go at it. Nope. He just bribes enough people and shifts it. Now, this guy's name, as we know him, is Antiochus Epiphanes. Again, we talked about him back in chapter 8. He's, uh, he, his nickname was the Madman. He was crazy. This, this guy was, was sort of like a precursor to Hitler. Okay, so he's going to go crazy on the Jews. But it's not just the Jews. He's going to go crazy on everybody. But, but there's a reason he ends up attacking the Jews. Okay, so verses 21 through 28. 
Um, we're going we're gonna to kind of jump over to f- verse 29, but in verses 21 through 28, what's happening is this guy, Epiphanes, is growing in power, and he continues to press Egypt down in domination. Um, he, he continues to press against Egypt's domina- in domination. He has his way with the people that are under him for a while, and, and so um, he's, he's in Syria coming down, and, and, and he continues to, like, push against Egypt, but this alliance that Egypt has formed with Rome grows stronger, so now he's not able to have his way with Egypt, and so he goes down there. He gets beat up by the Egyptians who are in this alliance with Rome, and so now what he does is he turns around and he starts back up through Israel, and he's like, I'm going to go beat them up. It's kind of like, like the kid in the neighborhood that can't win it you know, at basketball against his peers. So he goes down the road where the, you know, he's in ninth grade. He goes to where the sixth graders are playing and he's dominating, you know, like I'm going to go pick on these guys. I'm going to go beat them up. So he's defeated. He turns his wrath against Israel. Now this is where it gets very spiritual for the Israelites. He goes to war against the Holy Covenant of Israel and attacks her at, 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 uh, at her very heart. And this picks up in verse 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So he goes to war, it says, against the holy covenant of Israel. He attacks her at her very heart. <clears throat> Excuse me. Some of God's people forsake the themselves as they have been primed to do because of Hellenization. Now listen, these verses are very important. They're important because something has just happened in Jerusalem when this is taking place. Now we're, we're, we're approaching 400 years after the time that Daniel's prophecy had occurred. And here's what's happened. There's a high priest in Jerusalem who has experienced relative autonomy within their worship system over these few centuries. And there's a high priest named Jason who usurps the authority of his brother who is the Orthodox Jewish high priest, and he has him removed. And what he's doing is he's leading Israel towards Greek culture. This is called Hellenization. If you're ever reading through like your ESV study Bible or you're looking and you see the word Hellenized or the Hellenistic Jews, this is Jews who have been more influenced by Greek culture than they have been by orthodoxy to the Jewish faith. So there's a lot of parallel for us, some application there for being in love with the world and rejecting the orthodox or historical principles of the faith. So what he does, this guy Jason, he establishes himself as high priest. He has his brother moved. He was leading, the, he begins to lead the Jewish capital in a secular direction. He tries to turn Jerusalem into an urban city that mimics the major Greek cities. He establishes, listen to this, the high priest. Go back to Leviticus, do your homework, and read, if you want to, what the requirements for the high priest were. This guy takes the high priest position and its influence and then sort of links arms with so many of the people that have fallen in love with Greek culture and what it offers them. And he begins to lead 
them in this new direction where he establishes community centers and schools in the city that remove the teaching of Hebrew Jewish culture and law and replace it with Greek culture and philosophy. So now the high priest of Israel is now teaching and preaching. This is, this is where if you talk to faithful Catholics, this is what they're dealing with right now. They're frustrated because there is a pope who is trying to shift the Catholic church into a secular direction. You'll see this in the United Methodist Church right now where there's a complete fragmentation and we're going to see a divide because you've got the massive amount of the, like the majority of leadership saying we're going to go in a secular direction. And it's this New Testament will address this a lot, this idea of being in love with the world for what the world offers us. So this guy, Jason, he's taking them in that direction. In fact, Jason sends Jewish athletes to a small mini version of the Olympic, ga- Olympic Games And in the process, he makes sacrifices to Greek gods in honor of Jewish athletes. He went so far as to let non-Jews set up their own idols of worship in the Jewish temple. He was embracing everything secular and replacing everything sacred. And in the background, Antiochus Epiphanes was funding the work. So they're in alliance. This is his man that he's, put, that he's put in charge. Remember, there's always what we see, and then there's what's going on behind the curtain. His plan was to turn the Jews into Greek people who would be loyal to him as he built his own kingdom against the up-and-coming or the, the growing Roman influence. The false high priest Jason wasn't making this transition happen fast enough, however, so Antiochus comes in and replaces him with an even secular and more pagan high priest, one that potentially had no true Jewish roots. When Antiochus turned his attention toward the Roman-Egyptian alliance in, in Egypt, Jason overthrew the high priest that Antiochus had replaced him with and resumed the position. So now you've got the guy's not cooperating with Antiochus. He's like, no, no, no. I'm taking it in the direction you want to go. I'm getting rich doing it. We're just fine. You're not going to come in here and remove me. That's not the agreement we had. And so as soon as Antiochus replaces him and leaves, he kicks that guy out. Y'all tracking? Is everybody following? About 50%. I'll take it. I will take that. To, on this, I will take that. Okay. Um, woo! It's good, good, good stuff. Just hang on. It's getting, it's getting ready to be like... Like that. Okay. Um, Antiochus destroyed much of Jerusalem and turned it into a fortress. Antiochus began to dismantle Judaism. He comes in. He's like, Jason, got to go. I'll take over. I'm going to be the guy in charge. I'm going to take over. He begins to dismantle Judaism. And he, in uh, the process, now listen to some of the things he does. So he destroys the city, destroys much of the walls, destroys uh, and, and, and turns it into his own fortress. And then he begins to dismantle Judaism at its heart further. He forbade circumcision, which was, this was a very distinct, like a sacred distinction for the Jewish people. He forbade Sabbath worship and festivals, and the people were in such a bad situation because they had embraced the earlier reforms. So it's like nobody has a leg to stand on, so they're just going with it. He converted the temple into Jerusalem into a temple to Zeus. And in the process, sacrificed a pig in offering to Zeus on the blood of the altar that was, that was reserved for the Old Testament sacrifices that God had put in place as a foreshadowing of what Jesus would be. He 
kills 80,000 Jews and enslaves 40,000 more, selling them into slavery to other lands. Many of the Jews embraced the new religious change because they had already abandoned their true faith. They had no background or backbone to stand firm. But this is also where many devout Jews determined they would allow no more and they would fight even to the death before they would give in to this madman. Verse 33, and, a wise, and the wise among the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Red Oak, any time persecution comes to the church, it is for refining and purification. And it always, it always comes out that way. When, when persecution comes, the church is refined. The true church, and in, in this context, the true Israel of that day, those who were anticipating the coming of Messiah and who would hold to the faithful and sacred tenets of Judaism, one of those men being a priest named Mattathias. Now, what happens is Antiochus' reforms spread out of Jerusalem into more rural areas. In one of these small towns, a representative of Antiochus demands an unlawful sacrifice similar to the one he had made in the temple. He goes out into this rural town, goes into this small, small community. Now they're going to start to take over the small towns and villages. So he sends his generals and leaders and people to go out and to do the same thing that he was doing in Jerusalem. We're going to take over this country ideologically, ideologically. And if we can do it ideologically, we don't have to raise our swords. They'll kill a few, they'll butcher a few, they'll bring fear into the hearts of the people, then they'll change the hearts of the people and the minds of the people by bringing them into their way of thinking. But there's this guy, he's a rural country priest in a town out in the middle of the boondocks, and his name's Mattathias. And this guy from Antiochus comes in there and he says, we're gonna kill, here's what we're going to do, we're going to kill we're going to make a sacrifice in your temple to our God. And Mattathias says, no you, no, you won't. It stops here. We have set faithfully, quietly by resting on the promises of God for centuries. We're awaiting the coming Messiah and a future kingdom, but we will stand for this no more. And this guy steps up and says, I'll do it. And he's a fake priest. He's a Jew. But he's Hellenized, he's in love with the world. And he says, I'll do it, and Mattathias kills him. And when he, when he kills him, he turns and he kills this general. And he knows a civil war is about to unload. Why civil war? Because half of the country has Hellenized. The problem is we don't have a unified Israel at this point. And so war breaks out, and Mattathias and his five sons join him in a revolt against the Hellenistic Jews first. So the first line of fighting is to take back their country. That's the first line of fighting. Mattathias died, and his son Judah took over. His nickname is The Hammer. It's a good name. It's a good nickname. The hammer says, let's go, let's roll. And so Israel fights. True Israel gains her freedom reinstates worship, and listen, y'all, in the middle of Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian, Greek, Roman rule that led to Byzantine rule, Ottoman rule, in the middle of what would become about 2,600 years of conquest by other people, there's a 100-year window where they ruled autonomously and worshiped Yahweh because of the faithfulness of one family that said, enough. 
enough. And God will always raise up someone to advance his cause and to shine light into the darkness. So what do we do with this? Well, in terms of application, we're going to stop here because verses 36 on roll into chapter 12. It's all the same vision, but it begins to get more into those things which you remember Spencer in one message in chapter 8 talking about some of it is fulfilled and some of it is future. There's, you'll see this tension where some of it's being fulfilled now. And in, in, in like some of it, Antiochus Epiphanes be, continues to fulfill, but some of it's looking towards the future. But I want to, I in conclusion, challenge you with a couple thoughts from verses 32 and 39. Remember this, that God's people are always in the crossfires of the world. But God is always faithful to his plans and purposes. Look at verse 32. It says this. He shall, talking about Antiochus, seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. In verse 39, we read this. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. Don't be seduced by this world and also don't be one who lives in fear. The spirit of Babylon and the spirit of Antichrist are continuing through Antiochus. He wants to make, a more profitable, make it more profitable to reject God's ways and embrace the way of the world. In other words, he wants to make it more profitable to be ungodly than to be faithful to the Lord. There are those in our, in our church, not Red Oak, but in our church, Big C Church right now, who will make it more enticing to follow the ways of the world to, to see that it's more profitable to be ungodly. And y'all, it is more profitable to be ungodly in the here and the now, depending on what you consider profit. We will see again and again, as we have in Daniel, what we've seen that there's always two realms, the seen and the unseen. There's a spiritual battle that is constant, and in God, as God's people, we must remain faithful but we remain faithful by trusting in God's plans and purposes. I'm going to close with an illustration about the sovereignty of God because we try to explain the sovereignty of God. And I, and I used to always think of it, there's, there's no, I've not heard any new illustrations, but how is it that God is sovereign and he understands all of history and he's governing and ruling even when bad things are happening? And it's like, I used to think of the parade you know, like you can see the beginning and the end and everything that's going on. But if you're in the parade, you just see what's right there. And, but I heard a preacher, I've heard multiple preachers use this illustration. They say, it's like a ship. God's sovereignty works like this. Imagine there's a ship and it's going from point A to point B. It leaves one port, it's going to another port. And on that ship, there is a lot of freedom. People can do a lot of things. They can, they can participate in a lot of things. But they cannot control or change the ultimate destination of the ship. That's how God's working in history. Bad things are going to happen. Good things are going to happen. Good people are going to die. It's going to seem like bad people are going to profit. But the faithfulness that we are called to is faithfulness to a God who is sovereign throughout all of these ages, right up until the freedom that came through the Maccabean revolt. God's faithful we're looking forward to and anticipating the justice and righteousness that would come through the Messiah and his conquest. He conquered sin and death and the grave, and we can look back now and know how it all turned out. But we, like the people of Daniel, the people who read Daniel's visions, 
The prophecies that they read are also looking forward to a future return and reign of Christ and a future kingdom that will outlast and outlive the kingdoms of this earth. This should give us hope and peace and joy and confidence. Because of this, we should put our trust in Christ. Just trust him. He got the ship. He's steering it in the end. We trust him. God's in control. world's a little bit, little bit funky right now. A little bit wonky. There's that one verse in the New Testament that says people will be, you know, like celebrating the evil and wickedness that others do. The end of Romans 1. We're seeing that. It's not just I want to do what I want to do. It's I want to celebrate what you want to do so long as it's pushing as hard as it can possibly push against what the Scripture teaches. And God's going to always raise up a generation of people that are going to shine light in the darkness. And, and for this generation, let's do our part. My, my boy, Mattathias, he might not ought to stab that dude. I don't know. I ain't, going, I ain't going there. But I'm saying in the end, he'd stand before the Lord and say, Ooh, that was a whoops, but I'm just trying to do what was right, you know. Well, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. We know what's right. We have, the, we have the completed word of God. We have an empty tomb and the spirit of God living in us. Red Oak, let's be faithful in our generation. Let's just be faithful. We can't be faithful to our grandparents' generation. They were some slavery and some slave trading and some racism, and there was some bad things that happened in history. Let's be faithful in our generation so that people look back at us and go, I know one thing, there was a generation of the church of Jesus Christ that brought revival in the darkest moral season in history. Let's be part of that. Let's do something, let's do something with our lives that our great-grandkids don't have to apologize for or get in a social justice war over. Let's be faithful. Let's, let's live lives that, yeah, we're going to mess up. We're all going to make mistakes, but let's live lives where we don't have to apologize for abandoning the gospel and for being faithful to what the Word of God teaches and let's do it knowing what them boys knew, which was Jesus is coming because he is coming. And we know he's coming back. I don't know when it's going to happen. People love to get into uh, eschatology. A lot of people love it. A lot of people steer away from it. But it's necessary. It's here for a reason to bring to life and vivid imagery sometimes, as we've seen over the last few weeks, things that, that engage our imaginations. But I'm telling you, what we saw tonight is history fulfilled which means history is going to be fulfilled because the Bible is not about what God is going to do. It's about what God is always doing, which is advancing his plans and purposes in spite of the world and the spirit of Babylon and the spirit of Antichrist. So let's pull up the sails. Let's get on the oars and let's power forward. Amen. I'll pray. Lord, I pray that tonight we would worship you because you're worthy. Worship you in spirit and in truth, and now we would close our time together by singing songs of praise to you because you're worthy. I thank you that you are the king over history. You're king of kings, lord of lords, and you rule and reign over a kingdom that will have no end. And God, we are on a mission, but it is a mission of the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would be faithful in the way that we live our lives, to live in a manner that is consistent with the gospel, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. God, I pray you'd, as we work through so much detail, and I pray you'd bring to us excitement and hope in your, in your sovereignty. In Jesus' name, amen.